0: Hello, and welcome to The Second Chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm here to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter and to share stories of interesting and insightful women who may just inspire you in your current chapter. Welcome back, everyone. I was on holiday last week, but I'm back with a vengeance. Thanks everyone who caught up on previous episodes while I was away. If you're enjoying The Second Chapter, please spread the word. Tell a friend to listen at thesecondchapterpodcast.com or wherever they like to listen to podcasts. This week, I'm speaking with Lubna Kerr. Divorce, death, and her own health scare have brought about big changes in Lubna's life, but it was confusion over a comedy class that led to her biggest change yet. Now, having mostly given up a career in pharmacy, Lubna is an actor, a regular face on the Scottish comedy circuit, and is breaking down barriers wherever she performs. That
1: moment when I decided to stay in the comedy class was when my life changed. Because I could have said, look, well, guys, I'm chicken. I'm not doing this. Take your 100 quid. I'm away. I didn't. I stayed. Hi, Lubna. Thank you for joining me on the second chapter. How are you? I'm very well, Kristen. How are you? Thank you for asking me to come on this show.
0: We met over five years ago, I think now, just over five years ago, actually doing a show together, which my listeners will be familiar now because I did the Edinburgh Fringe specials, but we did a show in Edinburgh together.
1: We did. That's how we, I think I came down to London to do the rehearsals. Oh, yeah, that's true. And that's so <laughs> And that, my God, that was an adventure and a half itself. So, um, and then we met back up at the, the Fringe in Edinburgh. When was that?
0: in then 2018, 17, 18? It was five years. So, yeah, 17. Wow. So, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's just amazing. And it's lovely to see you looking so well, too. Oh, thank you. I feel like this morning I'm still shoving in coffee despite it being past 10 o'clock. But thank you. You look very well yourself. I would love to start with, other than our brief how we know each other, I would love to start with a question. I'm asking it in a way that I think is probably coming from a slightly more, I don't know, slightly more politically correct place. But I'm going to ask the question that you had from your, was it a solo show or a stand up? It was, yeah, it was a stand up show. You know exactly where I'm going. I know what I do Love, now where are you really from? <laughs> <laughs> That's a
1: really interesting question, Kristen, because I wrote an article about that same question about four weeks ago. and Or maybe it was more than that. I the track of time. It was during the Fringe, and it was for a Scotsman piece, a newspaper in Edinburgh. And basically, the summary of the article was... The answer depends on the intention of the person asking the question.
0: And that is why I started with, I didn't say it very well, but I think I'm asking it with the best of intentions, Yes, but also knowing it's been asked with other intention.
1: Absolutely. So um, I know you don't have a nefarious reason for asking
0: (laughs) this question. (laughs) It's (laughs) the basis of the whole podcast, but that's Okay. (laughs)
1: Look, if this was a person from Edinburgh asking me that question, right? They want to know what school you went to, state school or private school, which basically they're asking, are you rich or are you poor? Are you mm-hmm. part of my or not? And in Glasgow, if they ask you that question, they want to know what religion you are. Because what school you went to then identifies what religion you are. You went to a Catholic school, What is Protestant school. And I say to people, look at me, I'm Muslim. And they'll say, yeah, but are you a Catholic, Muslim Or are you a Protestant, Muslim? <laughs> so there's always different reasons and then so where am I really from do you want the serious answer now <laughs> so the serious answer is I was born in Pakistan but I moved over when I was about three not on my own detecting my parents with me and <laughs> it's still a joke <laughs> <laughs> you never know well, I'm just I think I'm just wired that way so yeah I came over when I was three and then I was brought up in Glasgow I've lived longer in Edinburgh than I have in Glasgow. I had four years in Wales when I did my PhD and had two children. So really, that's a really difficult question to say, where am I from? Do you know, I really, I, I think it really depends on who's asking me and where I am in the world. So if I'm in America and someone says to me, where are you from? I'll say Scotland. And if I'm in Edinburgh, just to annoy the Edinburgh people, I say I'm from Edinburgh. And if I'm in Glasgow, I <laughs> say I'm in Glasgow. <laughs> <I say anything?
0: laughs> <laughs> when you open your mouth, I think people would definitely at least say you're from Scotland, if not painted a bit with Glasgow. You're right.
1: I've tried elocution. I've been here for
0: 30 years. I'm still, so I've got the Glasgow twang, And I'm proud of it. I think it's gorgeous. When you open your mouth, it feels like, to me, a Glasgow accent feels warm. Like, I, I feel taken care of when someone speaks to me and says, these. It just is so gorgeous and like, we this. And I love it. I think it's beautiful. But don't ever change. Oh,
1: Thank you very much. That's a lovely description. I really like
0: that. There's warmth
1: in our voice and that's lovely. Thank
0: you, Kristen. It is funny because when I was up at the Fringe this year, I ended up hanging out with a group of women from Glasgow. There is a rough connotation about Glasgow, but they were some of the kindest people I've met. And they said, once you know us, you will know we are actually the the, kindness, the kindest people in Scotland, but I really did. I was just like hearing their voices and they match their personality. So yeah. warm, so generous yeah. and so funny. Like I think there is something in the water there also that has a bit of comedy in it.
1: <laughs> yeah, the River Clyde is not just full of dirt and fish, it's full of comedy too.
0: <laughs> so you didn't always start in comedy. I think we're obviously getting to the point that you have done quite a bit at this point. But you started as a pharmacist. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came to be?
1: So, my, father's, my father did, my father came over here to do a PhD chemistry
0: from Pakistan in the 60s.
1: And he then went on to do academia and research. And his friends were either doctors, mainly doctors or teachers. And, and his best friend was a doctor. And his best friend's son, who he had, he had tutored, my father had tutored, was a pharmacist. And my father's best friend, Dr Motok, said to my father, pharmacy's a good job for a woman. That's what he said, And then, So on the application form to university, I had applied for a doc- medicine, 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 and then two pharmacies. And the year that I was doing my exams, my father died. And I never got into medicine. I missed the grade by one point. And then pharmacy was my second choice. So that's how I got into pharmacy. And then as my unkind aunt would say, "Failed the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got into pharmacy. But I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it I've done a PhD pharmacy. I specialise in diabetes, and I've been doing that for nearly twenty years. And interestingly, you say about glass regions worms to help people. That's why I got into diabetes. My mum had diabetes, and I want, and she didn't have any education, and so I developed an education program for people with diabetes, mm. um, especially for people of colour with diabetes, because there's a greater prevalence of type 2 diabetes in people of colour. And so that came to help my mum, but it wanted to help other people. And now I run clinics for people who have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, called cardiovascular risk, for everybody regardless of the colour. I really enjoy that yin of helping. But you know what? If you're always giving of yourself, you're always emptying that and not refilling it, you will burn out. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me about six and a half years ago when I had a heart attack. And and you're on this journey, you're on this cycle of got to keep going, got to keep going. And then I was juggling, but by this point I'd got into the arts. I got into the arts in 2010, actually, when my marriage broke up. And then I'm juggling two jobs, I'm juggling three jobs, or four jobs. I've got my pharmacy world where I'm trying to do good, and then I've got my home life with my children, and then I'm looking after the house, and then I'm to going to Glasgow to help look after my mum, and then I've got the creative world. And you're like, you're juggling all these different things, and something had to give. It was me.
0: (laughs) It's just, it's so crazy for me to think of you having a heart attack because you just are this like little ball of energy in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) So the thought of your body just saying, no, that's too much. It's just so hard to imagine because obviously this happened not that long before I met you.
1: That's right. It happened in 2016 and we met in 2017. Mm -hmm. So it's just your answer, that wasn't it? And, And had I fully recovered? Probably not. Because I remember speaking to a nutritionist, and I asked her, because I saw a nutritionist, because I was absolutely in total shock when I had her Absolutely total shock. Didn't see it coming at all. I didn't have chest pain. There wasn't complaining to my GP. I've got angina. I can't walk. But none of the symptoms that I know of. And so it was a complete shock to me. So I went to see a nutritionist afterwards, and I said, how long well will it take my heart to heal? Mm-hmm. And she said, broken limb takes two years. So a heart will take, what, five plus? Oh, and that's if you're not doing any more damage to it. So yeah, and I think there's the physical side of healing, but there's also the emotional healing. Because when you see a heart attack, it's your heart is under attack. So is that because you're feeling unloved or unwanted or wanting love? You know, there's all these there's all these other things to focus on, not just the eating healthily and doing more exercise and managing your stress better. So it's been um, an interesting and challenging journey, I would say, since I've had the first time and trying to reprioritize my life and trying to put myself first. And I'm, you're right, I'm a really positive person. And I think that's what's caught, that's what's helped get me through this because you know, other people might not have had the same impetus to keep going. Some people become really close to this and, oh, no, I'm not going to do this and they're scared of doing things. <laughs> and then obviously being locked up in the pandemic and the risk of getting COVID, all these things impact on your mental health as well but I'm very blessed I'm a positive person and I've come through it and yeah
0: just out of curiosity because you did say you didn't it was a shock you didn't have all these symptoms and I think heart attacks still to this day are talked so much about for men but not for women so much so just for people listening what happened that you what happened (laughs) and was there anything that somebody else that maybe is going through the same thing could be looking out for
1: Yeah, the very first important thing I want to say is, the symptoms for women are different from men. The the description of heart attack is written by a man. Yes. The symptoms for women are totally, absolutely different. Now, I specialize, this is the ironic thing, right? I specialize in helping people not to have a heart attack.
0: (laughs) That's why I thought you might be a good person to ask, but on second (laughs) thought. (laughs) I mean, can you
1: you imagine my embarrassment? thing is, uh, Chris, I didn't know I'd had a heart attack, no. So I had come back from a long overnight, stagnant flight from America. I, so I, I wasn't moving about, it was overnight, I was trying to sleep. It was very cold that year, it was minus 12. My blood pressure had been high, it wasn't controlled. I was very stressed at work and I was carrying a heavy load. I I did come back on the Monday, I did a short follow on the Tuesday. They got lots of rewards. I did my clinics Wednesday Thursday Friday, right? No, not not taking into account that actually I might be jet lagged. I need a rest, okay? Right. Friday, I was doing my clinic and I did the clinic and then I went and parked the car. I was feeling fine all morning and then parked the car, went up the hill to get a ticket for the car, walked back down and put the ticket in the car and then walked along to my lawyer because I was going to see him to sort sort out my will.
0: Oh my God.
1: (laughs) And I got her, the irony, <laughs> the irony, right? So I got out standing outside the lawyer's office, and it felt as if there was a, a, like an elephant standing on my left side of my breast. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm like, oh, it's that pain. Oh, God, really? So, what is that pain? And I dropped it for five minutes, right? And it went away. So I went in, had my meeting with the lawyer. Went out that night because there was a new comedy place opening. So I went to work the next day. I was feeling a bit tired, but I'm jet lagged. Takes a lot out of you, right? Didn't know. Uh, Sunday, I was really tired. And I'm like, oh God, this is catching up. me. All this busy week I've had and went to work on Monday and it was minus 12 outside. To be honest, my work was horrible. I was very stressed. I'd been getting bullied. I didn't want to go there. I'd, I'd also been on call over the weekend. And I couldn't say to my boss, because I knew something was wrong on the Friday. But I couldn't say to my boss, do you know what? I don't think I should work this weekend because i would just come back for two weeks' holiday. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so you've got that guilt factor of, oh, I'm on call this weekend. I can't do that because well, I might have had a heart attack. You know, they would have thought I was just an asset, So I didn't. I worked that weekend. And I went into work on the Monday minus 12, carrying this two stone of an on-call bag. Got into the pharmacy department, and my heart started racing. It went to about two hundred, and I didn't feel well. So I, uh, my colleague, got around me. Somebody gave me water, and then somebody wheeled me to A and E. Thankfully, I worked in the hospital, and they took me to A and E, and they did the ECG, and they said, "Oh, you've had a heart attack." And am I might even am I might even been having two. I honestly don't know. Yeah. So that's how I found out I had a heart attack. And I, I didn't, didn't have the sweating. I didn't have anything else. But they, Say so feel clammy, all this, jolpy, nothing. Yeah, Just they talk little. about your arm, they talk about no, None. None of the above. None of the above. So I really oh, it's really important that we share with women that are actually harsh accent and said some different. So the doctor or the consultant would not let me out of the hospital that week. And I was in a I was in a slightly smaller hospital, in the main hospital where they do the angiograms. So that's when they put a wire up your arm into your heart and then they put a dye in to see what's blocked. And then if they find something blocked or narrowed, they put a stent in, which is like a bridge. So there wasn't a bed available for me. This is happening on Monday. There wasn't a bed available from the Friday. So I'm saying to the guy, ga- to the consultant, can I go home? I go back and he's like, no, he said, well, the last time I let everyone go home, she died at home. So I'm not doing that. <laughs>
0: Great.
1: Like, okay. <laughs> so it was really odd, actually, and awkward, and weird, bizarre, to be a patient in the hospital where I worked because I knew the staff. Yeah, I knew the doctors, I need nurses, I need the auxiliary, I need the porters, I need the cleaners. Honest, I just wanted to hide under my bed the whole time and pretend I wasn't there. I was so embarrassed, so embarrassed that I'd been so stupid and not knowing. That I felt guilty. I felt. Why didn't I looked after myself? Why didn't I see the signs? Why did I push myself so hard? Oh, and It's like a grief process. That's what it's like. I just felt it's about lost a part of myself.
0: It your was- own heart failing you a bit, or like you said, the term heart attack, it does feel like the most important mm-hmm. thing in your whole body, or maybe at your heart, your brain, to have that go wrong. It was just, yeah, I was in shock. I was in shock and it took the
1: NHS were good I got the stent I got the bed on the Friday I got the stent put in I have to say though the wires I was in more pain after the heart attack with the operation than I was with the heart attack.
0: Hmm.
1: you put a wire in your left it could, they took, I could only do it in the groin frankly I didn't but they put the grip on my right arm and they put the wire in the right arm all the way up to the heart it goes into your blood vessels guess what signs the, the wire would have been for oh yes a man's a man's blood vessel.
0: And you are not a big woman, even. I, <laughs> You're small. And Asian people have smaller blood
1: vessels on top of that. So, honestly, I had to get morphine the day after the operation because I wanted to chop my right arm off because it was in so much pain. Nothing to do with a heart attack, but more to do with the procedure.
0: It's so interesting because I have been talking to people a lot about, I talk about it a lot from the triathlon point of view as well, but um, bikes, like bikes are made for men and they have started making more women-specific bikes. But as a taller woman, I really struggle with a bike fit. And I remember several years back buying a fairly expensive road bike. This is ridiculous that I'm comparing this to your artist, (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: for it. Okay. (laughs) So
0: stupid. But the point being that I spent a good amount of money on this bike that was the right size for me as close as I could get with being a woman and being a woman of a fairly tall height. So I needed smaller handlebars. I needed brakes that were closer. And mm-hmm. basically the, the point being this bike is fairly dangerous yeah. in the size that some of the components are, yeah. but they have a woman's fit kit and um. it's 200 and some quid on top of how much this bike costs yes. to fit it out to be my size. And it was, it is, I know this from riding a lot from being a triathlon coach R- that it was actually dangerous, like steering wise and stuff. You yeah. have less control, you have less yeah. brake, you can't yeah. reach the brake levers. Yeah. And there are so many studies being done now, and there is the Visible Woman podcast or Invisible Women like yeah. book, all about how so many things are made for men, and yeah. it still hasn't caught up. No. And the fact that you have being Asian and being a woman, both of those on top of each other, it's yeah. just, it's ridiculous that there's not sizes, that there's not. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's because it's done by men, but mainly by white men, whatever it is. And they just don't think, they just don't think. So I was really sore, but you know what it took? I, I saw my cardiac consultant a couple of times and there's a cardiac, so, so they sent me to cardiac rehab classes. Yeah. And like, I'm like, I play tennis, I play badminton, I go to the gym, right, and send me to these classes, okay. And honestly, I must've been the youngest person there and you know what we did? We were walking around in circles, now lift (laughs) your arms above your head and now put your foot on the stool and I'm like, oh my God, I was, I lasted about a few weeks. I said, do you not have any like yoga or Reiki or something more appropriate? No. Oh, we used to have that, but the funding ran out. So I gave that up, but I was eventually referred to a cardiac rehab consultant. And he was absolutely fantastic. Took about nine months for that to happen, and he explained. He actually showed me the operation. Oh my god! I actually saw them doing the putting the wires in, and my heart beating. It It was just fantastic. I don't know if
0: I'd want to see that on myself or not. I can't decide about how I feel about. it.
1: You're awake through the process, right? You're actually awake through the process when it happens. But I was too scared to look. But I saw afterwards. It's just brilliant. And he said to me, the cardiac rehab consultant basically said to me. What happened to me was that all the ducks were in line, had all lined up. So travel overnight, you're at risk of DVT, right? So mm-hmm. That's clot in your legs, right? Except you if you're stagnant in such a long time, you're at risk of a clot. It just happened to be that clot was in my heart, right? It could be your leg, it could have been your brain anywhere. Then obviously I had high blood pressure. That's also risk of clot. Then it was very cold. And when you when it's very cold, it wasn't it, unusually very cold in Scotland, minus 12, your blood vessels constrict. So you have this cot going through your body, your blood vessels are smaller, so there's less space. Right. No, And then I was stressed at work, I didn't want to go there. And do you know what, actually, constant I never went back to that hospital job. I never, ever, I did. a whole year out, I was down to zero pay for that job, but I refused to go back. I had meetings with unions and my bosses and I'm like, i not going back, I'm not going back. And but, it was, if I hadn't had the heart attack, I'd probably still be there, moaning to you that I hate my job. <laughs> but it was like, my body's saying, you hate your job
0: and you're not gloving it up, so I'm just going to hit you stop. <laughs> So, but I do feel like there's always something. There's some sort of catalyst. And sometimes it's yes. dramatic as a heart attack. Sometimes it is a divorce or a separation or yeah. somebody else dying. Yeah. But there's always something that yeah. just has to be, sometimes yeah. you just need a wake-up call.
1: Yeah, and thing was my mum had died in 2013. And then I had the heart attack in December 2016. But my brother had died. My younger brother had died in April 2016. So I was still grieving for my mom dying, and then my younger brother dies, and yeah. in the same year I then have the heart
0: attack. And you had a divorce somewhere along all of that as or well. I had didn't a, you? Yeah, in two thousand oh, okay. and ten. I'm saying, appreciate for Oh, Okay, so that was a bit pain. earlier, but it was one major catastrophe yeah. or life changing. Yeah, it's mostly like one
1: thing after another, like. Your marriage breaks up, your mum, that I was very close to, dies. Your brother, there's only three of us left. My brother dies, it's me and my sister now. And then I wasn't happy at my job, but it's just one thing after another. So you're absolutely right. So it took the cardiac rehab consultant to say, everything just came online. And this is why you had the heart attack. And then I was sent for counselling. And I'm not, I know I talk a lot, right, but I'm not a money person. Mm. I just felt as if the counselling, I wanted to go and pretend I was okay.
0: That is so weird that you say that because I just was speaking to someone the other day because I, when my marriage separated, I went to a therapist for a while, and every time I went, I wanted to. It was like I wanted to show her how well I was doing. It was like the opposite of what I was supposed to be
1: doing. (laughs) And they just sit and just listen to you. And then I can talk for Scott. I can talk any rubbish I wanted to. Yeah, I just didn't feel it was. I wanted her to see. But how were you really feeling? I know this is just a facade. At which point I would have just broken down and started crying, but that didn't happen. And there's all oh, six sessions, oh, you're fine. Bye. And I knew I wasn't fine, but it was, I don't know if you don't want to show your vulnerability. I don't know what it was. I, I, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So that was an interesting chapter of my life. And the thing is now, I want to, I've been asking my consultant for a while. I want to know what's happening inside my arteries. Because you don't know that. You can get a scan of your lungs or you can get an echo that shows the size of your heart. And there is modern technology out there, but I don't know if it's available on the NHS. I don't want to have another angiogram, right? Because that was so sore. I don't want to do that. But I don't also want to be shocked and having another heart attack. I didn't know what was happening. Right. <laughs> so there is technology. I'm to do the research, but NHS hasn't caught up with that because I want to know what's happening inside my artery so that I can maybe... Not have that chocolate biscuit there. <laughs> <laughs> or oh, whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's, I think we should be much better. I'm a great believer in prevention. In 2008, I set up, oh, this is something else I was doing when I set up a charity in 2008, social enterprise charity, and it's called Centre of Health and Wellbeing because I'm a great believer in prevention. Prevention is better than cure. So don't prevent people from getting diabetes. Prevent people from having the heart. like, oh, didn't work for me, but that was a plan. Prevent yeah. people from getting cancer. Prevent people from being unhappy. What can we do prevention? And England, I think, is probably better set up than Scotland. Scotland doesn't really do that much for prevention. Yeah, we have bowel screening. Yeah, we have breast screening.
0: But But even that, it's interesting because I noticed in America, for example, we would be told to go for breast screening starting at like age 40 and Absolutely. we'd also and we'd also usually have examinations that were part of like gynecological care. They would actually yeah. do a breast exam as opposed to here I've noticed you start at 50 with yeah. breast exams yeah. and you're asked by your doctor have you done a breast exam yeah. a self yeah. exam. And of course people should be doing self exams as well, but it's just very interesting to me because it feels like if Scotland's one step beyond that, like the preventative thing is just not a UK wide thing. I think we could be yeah. doing better. but Absolutely. Totally.
1: Because my brother, my younger brother had bowel cancer at 43. He didn't die of that. He died of heart failure. What? So 43. So he would never have got picked up because the bowel screen starts at 50. Yeah. So, so I have to go to my GP every two years and say, well, maybe I should get a colonoscopy done because it's in the family. And it's like, why do I have to take the niche too? And yeah. so many people are, I'm lucky, I mean, I'm part of the health service, so I know what to ask for. I know that I need to be proactive. And I think people need to be more proactive about their health. They need to do the research, they need to read what's out there, and they need to look after themselves. And not just take this, the doctor says I should take all these different drugs, then that's what I should do. And when I work with patients, I used to work in a GP practice, and I would do medication reviews, and I'd say to patients, what are you on X, Y, and Z for and they're like, I do no, know, but the GP told me to take it. And then Oh my head, I'd say, We could take poison if your GP told you to take it. And they jump off <laughs> the edge of the cliff. Oh my! Did you jump off the edge. <laughs> yeah. My GP <laughs> told jump off the edge of the cliff. I'm like, so I think we've made people like that. You New know, society has made people just do what we just did We tell you, we've taken away the ownership from people. And I want to give ownership back to people and say, it's your body, it's your health, it's your life. Look after it. You've one shot at it. So do the research, find what the drugs are on. tell this really funny story. I've got this patient and (laughs) he was prescribed a new drug for blood pressure. I'm not not taking it. He said, I'm not taking it because I've read the science effects. It's a really standard drug being out for a long time. And I'm like, "Uh, how many do you smoke a day? Uh, What day? (laughs)
0: <laughs> 40 cigarettes a day, but I won't take the medication that's supposed to help that. It's no. going to
1: bring the blood pressure down. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, really? So yeah, so I think people need to take responsibility for themselves. They need to educate themselves. And I think we as healthcare professionals have responsibility
0: to help. So you are still in the healthcare profession. However, I yeah. feel like... A large part of your life (laughs) is no longer that. And right in the middle of all this, your mother dying, the heart attack, you were doing some acting but stumbled onto comedy.
1: Yeah, so I do one day of NHS work now, but I can talk about it because I did it for a long time. Um, In 2013, I, so being Scottish, Pakistani, female, older, I needed a USP, you know, a unique selling point. (laughs) What will I do? And I watched comedy for years. I'd been to the stand. I love my father. Actually, was a huge comedy fan. We used to watch growing up. We used to watch Morecambe and Wise uh, and Two Ronnies. And my dad's favourite was Dave Allen, and my mum's favourite because it was sketches. we're always mocking religion. He was always mocking religion, so it was really funny. So I grew up with, and my father was very funny as well. So comedy was just part part of my life. I think. Um, I think my marriage probably eroded some of my wittiness. So when my marriage broke up, and then I heard this, I remember during the Fringe 2013, and I'd been it was the year my mum died, and I needed to do something, a distraction from the grieving process. And so I'd been thinking about laughing horse comedy do weekend courses during the Fringe in Edinburgh, and I, oh, I'll do. I'll, so I looked up what weekend I was free in it, was the 23rd of August, and I thought I didn't book. I didn't. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. And, you know, It was 100 quid and my tight Scottish Packs anyway. And I'm like, wow, what, what, what? Something else comes up. So the night before the course, right, I book it, but it's too late to book online. So I phone and pay for it over the phone. And I didn't get the follow up email or whatever I was supposed to get anyway. So I turn up there. And because I was still grieving and I hadn't really got my head around right everything, I know it sounds really weird, but I thought I was going to a comedy writing class. Mm-hmm. So I turn up there, right, And the guy says to me, So you all right Will you your get tomorrow night? And I'm like, my gig. <laughs> what? What? and no. you hey, go. Oh, go a minute. No. And there was like half a dozen of us in the class, and I'm like, No, I didn't sign up for this. I'm like, Where was this information? Getting annoyed at him. Sit up. It was in the email. Did you not read it? And I'm like, i signed up over the phone. I didn't get the email. And I'm looking at all these people. I'm like, can't. You know that? Do you ever look back in your life and you think there was a moment where you, where it changed? Where it just you had that you could have gone right, you could have gone left. Well, that moment when I decided to stay in the comedy class was when my life changed. Because I could have said, "Look, guys, I'm chicken. I'm not doing this. Take your 100 quid. I'm away. I didn't. I stayed. And I did the cake. Because I was like thinking, what's the worst going to happen? There'll be nobody there. Nobody (laughs) will laugh. I'll cry all the way home. (laughs) And then I didn't tell anybody. Honestly, Kristen, I didn't tell anybody. Nobody. Can you imagine how difficult that was for me? Chatty at right? <laughs> to not tell a soul, not my sister, not my children, nobody, that I was going to be doing that comedy. Because I thought, they'll stop me. They'll tell me I'm stupid. They'll say, you'll embarrass yourself. What are you doing? Have you lost your brain, mum? All the things that people would have to you. Would, would have been totally. <laughs> but I didn't want to hear them. And, and you know what? I didn't even use them on me. When I went on stage, I got the MC to introduce me as Miss Cat
0: that's an interesting <laughs> The other one I was going to
1: say was misunderstood. Yes. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> anyway, so we turned up. thing was, I hadn't been part of the Fringe before, right? So I forgot it was the Fringe. So I turned up on the Sunday night at Three Sisters. And like evening, there was like hundreds at the gig. The place was so packed, right? And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> time for a sharp exit, here, right. But I didn't, I stayed and it was like doing your first ever gig and it was like live at the Apollo. Yeah. So that's what it felt yeah. like. And so I walked up on stage, I picked up the mic and the stand collapsed in my hand. <laughs> that's so what happened to me. And everybody started laughing, right? <laughs> I had the mic in my hand and the stand was like, just collapsed. And everybody started laughing. I'm like,
0: oh. This is easy. <laughs> oh, what a fool. What a all fool. I have to do is break things and people will laugh. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: our tutor, so we'd, we'd practiced our set. We'd written, I'd never written comedy before. So we'd practiced it over the weekend with our colleagues. And of course they're going to laugh. And you don't know, this is the first time I'd ever publicly performed a comedy set. And I'd spoken before on presentations and conferences and all that sort of stuff that not, not had to be funny. You yeah. we have a problem standing up. It was the funny part that was difficult. Um, and our two-tier set is, look, they'll come apart in your set and you'll forget what you're going to say. And I'm like, I am an actor. I don't forget my lines. And I'm like, a minute into my set, I forget what I'm going to say. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I can't recognize. And I'm looking at the audience. Because they, they all know we're beginners, right? They know it's our first ever time. And I thought, maybe I'll just put my hand up and say, I'm really sorry, Soli Gang's an absolute idiot. I don't know what I'm doing here. Just let me go. Just let me go. I'll never come back. I'll never come to your door again. You know? But then I remembered what the tutor had said to us, and he was great. Lewis, absolutely brilliant tutor. He'd said to us, if you forget what you're going to see, the first thing that comes into your mind, the first thing.
0: right?"
1: And years later, I realized, well, I realized years later why that was, because it's a left turn. It's mm-hmm. a left turn comedy, right? So I do not know what I'm seeing. I was saying. i to said my name or something. I maybe answered very much. can't remember. I said, oh, geez, you do know I'm from Pakistan. And they all started laughing. Like, What's so funny about that? <laughs> the thing is, it's what it goes back to the question you asked me earlier, Kristen, yes. the opening question. Where are you from? Because I confuse people. I have this lovely tan skin <laughs> and I dress like Western and then people are confused. They're like, oh, brown skin, Western clothes. What accent she got? Oh, she's got this. Oh, this is that a Scottish accent. Oh, but this. and then it's like a jigsaw puzzle. They're like yeah. trying kind to of match everything together, and they're thinking maybe I was Spanish or something. And then when I said I'm Pakistani, it was like a relief. They're like, "Oh, right now." But so that was such an important lesson because I found in the first minute of my set that the laughter was like. It was like I was doing it online and there was a a delay in their laughter. And because they were trying to work out where I was from. So I have now learned, every say I do, I nail it at the start. Hi, I'm looking at I'm from Pakistan. Because then they are not then thinking, oh, where is she from? So I nail it that where I'm from, why I've got an odd sounding name. This is my heritage. Because then they can focus on what the rest of them got what I'm going to say, And they're not trying to work out. Where I'm from? How does it all work out? Because people are inherently nosy. I know that. I'm the world's nosiest person, right? I own it. I own that. I'm happy with that. And so they want to know where you're from. And acknowledging that, I think, is really important.
0: So I acknowledge it. It is funny, though, because when I think back to what you were saying at the beginning, is it state school or is it, are you rich? Are you poor? Mm. Are you... Catholic, or are you Protestant? All these things. But I get asked here all the time where I'm from. Sometimes yeah. sometimes I don't even have to open my mouth. Usually, obviously, <laughs> I open my mouth. And I mean, I've been here 11 years. And for the longest time, I thought it was so, I don't want to say it was rude, because it was send, said from a genuine place. Yeah. But I have just come to realize it if it wasn't for my American accent, it would be that I have a Midlands accent. So somebody would want to know where I was from, or I would have a Scottish accent. So somebody would want to know if I was from which part of Glasgow and which. (laughs) So I can imagine though, you put the lovely tan that you mentioned (laughs) into the mix and it does really just ratchets it up one more notch because everybody's nosy and they want to know. And it's not always said Sometimes, I'm sure, especially in your case, you probably hear it from people that have the worst of intentions. But a lot of times, it is people that are just bloody nosy. And
1: that's great, because I can relate to that. And the people that, who do have the worst of intentions, they're a great challenge. I love them, because then I want to show them that I'm just normal, I'm just a passionate person who grew up in Scotland, and I can make you laugh. And that's a bigger challenge to me, to get those people who might not like the shade of my skin or might be against immigrants coming here, but actually I want to show them that I've totally integrated, I'm married a Scotsman, I'm doing all the things that they do. The only difference between me and them is that I've got a better time than them.
0: And God knows us pasty, pasty, pasty white people are always trying to get a tan. I,
1: you know, like, I don't understand it because they're like, the not like people with colour, yet they're trying to get colour. I'm like, whoa, what's wrong? You want to be my colour, but you don't like me for being my colour.
0: Makes no sense whatsoever. I do love that you've really leaned into it though, because you've, I mean, your shows now, you've talked about, you've done the stand-up, where are you really from, yeah. the Asian Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah. Tell me a little bit though about the show that you just had, or that you still actually are touring a bit, yeah. Yeah. Tickbox.
1: So Tickbox was the first play that I wrote, and I started it in 2019, and I got a small amount of funding from Creative Scotland, who are like the, so the English Arts Council. And it was a 20 minute piece I wrote, and I just wanted to do some research and development about bringing my parents' story to life. So my parents, my father, as I said, my parents from over the 1960s, my father got a scholarship to do a PhD in chemistry. So I did 20 minutes in 2019, and it was just a small sharing with industry people. And then, of course, you know what happened for the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then in 2021, I got some more funding to write the whole play from, again, Creative Scotland, fantastic. So last year I wrote the whole play. I worked with a dramaturge. I worked with dramaturge in the first one as well. I worked with dramaturge and director and a set designer and I put on the whole thing and we had about a very small friend in, in 2021. So the play is about my parents journey from middle-class life in Pakistan to coming and landing and living in Govan. Now Govan is not middle-class okay and my mum and my dad, but my mom in particular, because my dad was at work during the day. He taught a up. very prestigious college in Pakistan and he was called professor. And my mom had a comfortable life in Pakistan and she never needed to cook or clean or do anything. She had the family, people helped her look after the children. She didn't just do anything. Then she comes and lands in a one-bedroom, four-story tenement flat in a slightly rough area of Glasgow. And her mm-hmm. English was perfect because mm-hmm. they all learn English right. So the culture shop for her. So the story is about what it's like from my mum and my dad coming to Scotland, coming to Glasgow and meeting people and how they overcame those barriers. And then my father was a very, very clever man. And unfortunately, he died because of the stress and the racism and the discrimination that they both encountered, but my father in particular, through his work life. He died at 45 of a heart (sighs) attack. He had his first heart attack at 41. So maybe I should have re- read the science, but then she had an history. I didn't. So he died at 44, and then my father did research at Strathclyde University. And after he died, Strathclyde University named a chemical reaction after my father called the canned possum reaction. I let people all over the world use that drug development process. And I'm like, people should know about that. Who else's father has got, a, has got a chemical reaction named after him? What a legacy. So I wanted to share that with people. I wanted to, to yeah, again, to raise the profile of Paxson people do good work. We're not all just terrorists or pedophiles.
0: You know, we're actually <laughs> intelligent people. It is crazy, though, because you mentioned like, you know, him encountering racism and all these kind of things. It's so frustrating to think that somebody's living with that. And yet when they die, oh, he was amazing. Look at all these contributions. Let's yes. name this after him. Yeah. And it's to have the even a fraction of that kind of recognition and kindness in life might have changed things a little Absolutely, bit. Absolutely, totally. And then after he died, my mum then, my mum was a graduate from Pakistan, but it hadn't worked because
1: she would three children, very traditional. But she'd learned to cook because she didn't know, she was a good cook. She loved cooking, but she didn't need to cook in Pakistan. But she learned to cook and she went to sewing classes. And after my dad died, she went to do translation services because there's a lot of women who needed help. My mom spoke very good um, English. But then she wanted to do something for herself. I had a lot of Arab friends at Strathclyde University, and I wanted to learn a bit more Arabic so but I'll go to an evening class. So my mom decided to come with me because as a 19-year-old Pakistani girl, we weren't allowed to go out on our own at night. Mm. Really? So my mom comes with me, and I'm like, cramping my style. You know? Anyway, turns out she was really good at Arabic because she was good at languages. And she decides she's going to go to Glasgow University to do an Emmy in religious studies, Arabic, and philosophy at the age of 48. She does that, passes her main and everything brilliant. Then she sets up classes for free for Muslim women to uh, uh, to get them to interpret the Qur'an. Because up to that point, all the scholars, all the Muslim scholars were men. Oh, gets back to that male point of view. And my exactly. mum no, let's do it from the woman's point of view. So she set up these classes for women all over Glasgow and she was the first female Muslim scholar in Scotland. And honestly, she did it for over 30 years and, she, and at the peak she have four classes a week for free in people's houses. And it, it, you know, the culture is very much of togetherness, So, the Pakistani women or the Muslim women would be in their best clothes, and they're all vying to get the best seat to listen and watch my mum, you know, hear her stories and hear her interpretation, ask her questions, but yet close enough to the door so that when the food was announced, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it was just lovely. It was just, and she left such a legacy. So, when I did the play, I did tick box last year in Glasgow. I did three, the six nights in Edinburgh and then three performances in Glasgow. And they were, they were, women who came to the play, who'd been in those classes that my mom had told me. I don't know who was crying more, me or them, because they were like, I was there, I was there with your mom in that journey. And honestly, even talking about it, I'd get goosebumps.
0: I know you also were wearing some of your mother's beautiful clothes because you talked a lot about that you look like a Western woman yeah. walking the streets because you ha- you are, you've been here your whole t- the whole life. Yeah. But to take that moment and... Yeah, put your mother's clothes on. That was just—I didn't
1: do it last year. I did it this year, and I don't know because last year I had a costume designer and everything, so we bought costumes. And I don't, really, I don't know what made me do it. I just decided the first night I was going to wear one of my mum's outfits, and it just absolutely totally changed my performance. I literally felt as if she was there with me. So for the whole two weeks that I did tick box this year, I no two weeks minus one day, I. One day, I wore something from last year, and I just didn't feel it. I just didn't feel it. I performed it, and I said to my tech lady, I didn't enjoy her. I just didn't enjoy it that night. Exactly. That was it. I wore my mom's outfits, and I had maybe four or five of her outfits that I wore. On different occasions, one, one was for my brother's wedding, one was for my sister's wedding. And They're lovely ornate dresses and can't really part with. And then some of them were, were outfits that she would wear to the, the, the classes that she ran. They were called darts. So some of them were those. And I'm channeling. I was channeling her energy. It's yeah. just brilliant. And I'm, not, I'm always, now, whatever I'm tuning with tech folks, will wear my mom's clothes.
0: Well, yeah. The chance to bring her back in that way yeah. and to honor her legacy. I can't imagine going back. Like you said, you just wouldn't feel it the yeah. same way. Yeah. 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 It's just amazing.
1: So, yes, yeah, so I'm touring Tickbox now. I'm trying to find venues around the country. I'm coming down to North Lincolnshire in November. I'm hoping to tour rural Wales at some point. I'm going up to, to north of Scotland. And I'm just applying to theatres and just trying to get them to... Because it's, it's such a beautiful story. It's a story of my parents. It's their legacy. There's also a story of pain and of discrimination and of racism. And I think people need to know the impact of words, the mm-hmm. impact of... How do you make people feel? And words are not just something you throw away. They can literally, I know they say sticks and stones and break your bones,
0: words will never hurt you, but actually that's not true. They can dig deep. Well, it's like you said, maybe a couple years for a bone to heal, maybe five years for your heart to heal. But words, you remember that. That's not something, yeah. something that...
1: Yeah, Mio my, my Angelou said, people forget what you say, people forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel.
0: Absolutely, and those
1: words that make you feel like you're different, like you're not wanted, like you shouldn't be here, and and I think the media have a big part to play in stirring that. So I want to be that person who says, "Look, we're normal. We're just like you, but we tell stories and we're funny and we've got a better tan and look at our clothes, <laughs> music." So yeah, I feel like I'm on this path of Actually, sharing a story that's not about terrorism, that's not about forced marriages, is a normal story that people haven't heard. Because, again, everybody thinks it was just working class people that came from South Asia. But it wasn't. was doctors and teachers and arts people came across as well. But those stories aren't heard. So everyone's flying the flag for them.
0: And I do think how people can relate is through comedy. You've got this serious story yeah. and you've also got your comedy that's reaching... Across the aisle or whatever you want to call yeah. it.
1: In the play. So I, I play like eight characters, right? And in between, when I come out of the scenes, I become myself. And then I do a bit of stand-up through our storytelling and I make that funny. And then I'm I'm, I'm commenting on either what we've just seen or what they're going to see. And I think comedy is such a good medium to get things to land. Because if yeah. you just say, oh, you were really racist and horrible, people aren't going to re- reply. They're gonna, not going to take to that. If you can couch it in a way that actually people are laughing at something that is racist and you're hoping that they'll then reflect on their behavior and go away and think should I have laughed at that when it was do I do that (laughs) (laughs) that but what was really interesting was I'm really keen to get more people of color to come to the arts and to be part of the arts whether it's as audiences huge we need to get a lot more people to come to watch also, we need people in the arts on stage, but behind the stage, directing, producing, lighting, designing, makeup, set design—all these things. And I want to show—I want to show the, the Asian world, Asian generic, Asian wider, not just South Asian. Actually, you can have a career in the arts, and you can be successful. You can get master. Hello, Basta. You can get <laughs> emerging artist. You know, <laughs> um, and, and you can be successful. I feel that I'm. Um, I want my children, my grandchildren to have the opportunities that, that I didn't have, that my parents didn't have, and that we can be totally fully integrated into life and not seen to be different, but just to be seen to be
0: funny. And to celebrate the differences as well. Absolutely. Because there's a beautiful thing that you don't want to, you want to integrate. You say normal, but it's so beautiful to hear about your history yes. and your culture as yeah. well.
1: Yeah. To celebrate the differences, but to actually see we have more in common than we have different. And exactly. we actually all live together in this planet together, celebrating our differences and enjoying each other's food and company and clothes and music. And People just want to separate us all the time, but actually we have so much more in common. If we were all the same, how boring would the world be? <laughs> it would be very boring, absolutely very boring. Yeah, 100% agree with you. So celebrate the differences and live together happily and peacefully.
0: So I ask you about bringing a quote, but you've already said two that I think are pretty impactful. <laughs> Is there another one that's a favorite one of yours, or have you already spilled the beans? <laughs>
1: There's a quote in my play that my mom says. Oh, I love this, and she says, "Always look forward, you'll be not never back." And I repeat that in the play a few times. So sometimes on Twitter, some of the people who my fans will quote that back to me, and it's lovely. And it's so so important because we do. If we look back, we'll always look at things that didn't work out. But actually, we will look forward. Then we're stepping forward. We're moving forward. We're advancing. We're advancing in life. And so, don't let the past hold you back. Really is what you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of my, one of my other quotes.
0: It seems that you have a very bright future. You should be looking ahead. You're so busy doing what you love doing. Yeah. And in your own way making the same kind of legacy for yourself as your parents made. So, cool, so thank you for bringing your stories to us. And thank you for joining me today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Kristen. It's been lovely. You know, it you. was
0: great. To, uh, it's so crazy that I've known you all this time. And now I've just learned so much about you <laughs> and I can share it with other people. So I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Ben was a
1: contact mate on social media. I'm not Miss Cappuccino now anymore.
0: I will make sure all your contact details and links to the show and everything else are in the show notes so yes get in touch with Lubna and go see her show if you get the chance thank you so much thanks for listening if you enjoyed the episode tell a friend follow us on Instagram and sign up for the second chapter newsletter the second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at com and uk. Thanks again.